0: This is Sam, this is Paul, and this is Southpaw.
1: Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. This is fight study UFC 242, Nurmagomedov versus Poirier. Now, many analysts believe Dustin Poirier to be the best stylistic matchup to beat Habib Nurmagomedov. Others say it's Justin Gaethje or Tony Ferguson. But how well did Poirier do against Nurmagomedov? Much worse than predicted. As dominant as Nurmagomedov has been, people still underestimate his MMA abilities. And that comes down to oversimplification. They oversimplify his MMA game. He's a classic grappler, a Mark Coleman 2.0. And if that's what you believe, then of course you think Poirier can be the one to beat Nurmagomedov. But Nurmagomedov is not Mark Coleman 2.0. Nurmagomedov is not a grappler who does MMA. He's an MMA fighter who grapples extremely well. And there's a difference between the two. Poirier is the southpaw fighter with a two-inch reach advantage. He's also a fighter who jabs well and has, over time, become a very good defensive fighter. Who has Poirier beaten to get the Interim Lightweight Championship and challenge Nurmagomedov? Joe Duffy, Bobby Green, Jim Miller, Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez, and Max Holloway. Not only is that an impressive list of names, but it's a variety of styles. And he's overcome them all. And with each fight, Poirier got better. He was a BJJ brawler who tended to fade and get discouraged, who became a sound defensive boxer who knew how to use the cage to keep the fight standing or get back to his feet. He became a fighter who learned how to recover well between rounds and in mid-round to regain his composure and get some of his win back. He's also an excellent finisher. Now, the point about getting his win back is going to be important later in this analysis. But Poirier is also with the American Top Team and Mike Brown, one of the best camps to be a part of. So Poirier was going to come out prepared for this fight. And the fight started with Poirier pressuring with low kicks and jabs. The read on Medov has been that he's good coming forward, but bad on the back foot. Poirier and team seem to have that already scouted. But will this pay off? And here's another question. Since Poirier likes to engage with punches, and in particular, close-range boxing, wouldn't that leave him vulnerable to be clinched? And Poirier's answer was to keep much of the fight in kicking range, going for low kicks and high kicks. He went for a teep at one point, but after Nemagomedov caught that, Poirier relied strictly on low kicks and the occasional high kick. But Nomagomedov adjusted by punching his way into range and crashing through any oncoming kicks. If Poirier were to kick, he would be off balance anyway, possibly falling to the ground. So Poirier ended up eating punches he wasn't prepared for. Now I mentioned Poirier's defense. Poirier has improved his defense by applying the Philly shell and shoulder roll to his MMA. This has made Poirier frustrating to hurt for more than a few punches because he rolls his shoulder redirecting the punch while hopping backwards to soften the blow. Well, hello cage, hello double leg. He hopped his way right back onto the cage with his hip squared. But even there against the fence, Poirier was still prepared. Poirier's team saw how previous opponents had found success against the Medov by using a two-on-one against his left elbow and wrist, not allowing the lasso to close in on them. But against the cage... The cage becomes the third arm. So even though Poirier was controlling the left arm of Nurmagomedov, he was still pinned. And as Poirier tried to break free, he was running himself into the cage. And the forward pressure of Nurmagomedov was enough to take Poirier down. Then from there, Nurmagomedov got his hands clasped. And once that happens, the mat returns are a guarantee. That's what people don't get. When Nurmagomedov shoots, yes, you can defend and get back up initially, But the first shots aren't to take you down. It's to establish his grips. It's very similar to some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu entries. You can sometimes enter ugly to get your collar and sleeve grip, initially looking like you're losing or getting defended against. And once you get that, that's when you're actually beginning. And once Nurmagomedov gets his grips and gets you to the ground, he no longer forces the fight. He becomes opportunistic. He allows you to put yourself in bad situations by creating slack, then taking up the slack. That's often how he gets to the mount or the back. He allowed Poirier to sit out and turn into him. And that's when Nurmagomedov mounted him. Then once you feel Nurmagomedov's top pressure, you already know that the ground and pound will be bad. So you turn and give up your back. The reason Nurmagomedov doesn't finish often with ground and pound is because fighters keep giving up their backs to save their face. But the whole time you're on the ground with Nermagomedov, he's putting weight on you. Not just yours and his, but also his downward pressure. And what I mean is, when downward pressure is added, the force is much greater than the combined weight of the two fighters. And all this weight is coming down on your arms because you're posting, because you don't want to be collapsed down and smashed on the ground. But the weight isn't even coming directly down, it's constantly shifting angles. More to one arm, than the other, then forward, then back, burning out your arms. Because sometimes fans don't understand why a conditioned, world-class athlete gets their arms burned out in an MMA fight. Because they should be able to do tons of push-ups, right? But this is different. It's not just holding a push-up. It's holding a push-up with the weight of the world on your shoulders during an earthquake. Now, with your arms preoccupied and the weight to contend with, Nurmagomedov is free to go for neck cranks, punches, control, and mat returns. And when Nurmagomedov goes for the neck, it isn't a choke. Like I said, on the ground, he doesn't force, he's opportunistic. So he goes for neck cranks. He's like that mat bully trying to hurt you and screw up your neck. He's trying to injure you rather than get a clean submission. In pro wrestling, they call it working a body part, especially for the shooters. Before you leg lock your opponent, you kick the crap out of their leg. Before you choke your opponent, you keep chopping them in the neck. Nurmagomedov will keep cranking your neck until eventually it's so messed up and hurt, you can no longer defend the choke. But it's round one and Poirier is prepared and he's ready for all this and he's not discouraged. Yet. With his wits about him, Poirier eventually goes for the set out again. But this time, he gets what he wants. Enough space to scoop back and wall walk. Back to his feet most mma fighters of this current generation have drilled scooting back into the cage and standing up since they began training it's muscle memory this is why you don't see as much grappling and fights ending by ground and pound in the ufc because fighters have gotten so good at using the wall or the cage i should say to get up it's hard to hold them down even the novice wrestlers it's like a wrestling shortcut that only applies to mma You can't get world-class in wrestling in a few years, but you can get really good at using the cage to get up. Because in wrestling, there is no cage, and world-class wrestlers don't practice using a wall to take people down. This is why now strikers are doing so well in the UFC. Teach a good striker the wall walk, and they can be a champion. And using the cage to get up and wrestle is an ATT specialty, like Poirier, like Tyron Woodley, like Joanna Champion. But... That's the worst thing to do against Magomedov. He's built his game around wrestling people against the cage as they're trying to stand up. This is one reason why he's not a grappler in MMA, but an MMA fighter who can grapple. His game is built for MMA. And also, you can't even get fighters up against a cage unless you're already a pretty good MMA fighter, even without the grappling. But for Poirier, how do you change in one camp what you've been trained to do your whole career? To not do what always worked and he didn't so poirier tried to scoot back and wall walk back to his feet which gave nirmagomedov the mount and instead of the illegal down elbows eddie alvarez used from this same position against poirier nirmagomedov put poirier flat on his back before he rained down elbows and at the end of every round if nirmagomedov has his opponent on the ground and there's only 10 seconds left he gives up on control and looks only to smash. Underground, Nurmagomedov is so aware of his environment and of the time. Between rounds, Mike Brown told Poirier wisely not to back up. But backing up and shoulder rolling is how Poirier defends. So that's like asking Poirier to not block punches or to change his style in the middle of a fight. You would first need to revamp his style, and if you did that, he wouldn't even be fighting for the title. His style is what got him to this stance. Another interesting bit of corner advice was Mike Brown telling Poirier to keep using the switch, but to hold the leg. This might seem like bad advice since it failed twice, but this must be a move they drilled specifically for Nemagomedov, Medov, and one they must believe in. And switching is a series of moves, where you sit out, turn in, and reverse positions, and probably in this case, to also stand up. I'm assuming part of the idea is also to keep the fight moving and to keep scrambling. So this is actually not bad advice at all. But along with this, like I previously mentioned, Brown was also telling Poirier not to back up and also to keep throwing punches. He told Poirier to keep exploding. This is where Poirier told him when he tries to explode, Nurmagomedov keeps threatening him with submissions. This is interesting foreshadowing. Because obviously, from the context of what Brown was saying, this was about the stand-up exchanges. But Poirier was only half-listening because he was too distracted by a bigger problem, one that only a fighter can know. That the biggest threat he felt was on the ground, Nurmagomedov was messing up Poirier's timing and rhythm with constant submission attempts. So it's almost like the opposite way of how Damian Maya uses them, which is to just go for the submission. Nurmagomedov uses it to interrupt you and to injure you and to scare you. In a weird way, it's a grappling equivalent to a feint. And basically, Poirier was telling Mike Brown that this was making him hesitant and afraid to get back to his feet. But with seconds left, and because Brown wanted to be clear, he told Poirier he was talking about the stand-up striking. And basically, if he can't explode on the ground, he can still explode while striking on the feet. And to focus his energies there. But I really think something was missed here. Because here, Poirier was revealing to Brown the psychology of fighting Nurmagomedov. You fear standing up. You're telling him what to do when you stand up. But he's telling you he's afraid to stand up. And if you're one of our supporters on Patreon, you heard me break down Nurmagomedov and how he makes his opponents commit themselves to staying on the ground. And that's what I meant. Poirier just said it. Nurmagomedov uses your instincts and everything you've trained to do against you. And you're not going to change all that in one minute between rounds. And by doing this, he makes you second-guess yourself. He makes you afraid to do the thing you need to do, which is to stand up and knock him out. Now in round two, Poirier got his best offense when he backed Nurmagomedov up and hurt him with a right hook. The same punch Michael Johnson landed. And just like back then, Nurmagomedov was on the back foot and temporarily his footwork fell apart. The scouting that Team Poirier did and was attempting to do in round one paid off in round two. But again, this is why Nurmagomedov is not Mark Coleman 2.0 or 3.0 or just a grappler in MMA. He's a 3.0 MMA fighter. And though he has flaws and can fall apart, what makes him so special Is he can still maintain his composure and recover his footing and defense very quickly. So you have a very small window with Nemagomedov. I also mentioned how Poirier's arms were getting tired from the grappling exchanges. And here, after some flurries, Poirier's arms looked extremely heavy. And when tired, old habits reared their ugly heads. Poirier started brawling and walking himself backwards onto the cage. And now that Poirier is tired, When Nurmagomedov shoots, rather than looking for a reversal or a switch, Poirier goes back to his brawler BJJ fighter roots and jumps for a guillotine. In this fight, it was Poirier who eventually became the old school fighter, not Nurmagomedov. And this jumping for a guillotine is what put him in a bad position against Alvarez in their second fight. Twice. And this also nearly got him finished in their first fight as well. Old habits die hard. Now, when Poirier did get separation against defense, which he worked so hard for, all Nurmagomedov had to do was to throw punches, which he knows means Poirier will put his arms out of position to defend what is patented Bayou shoulder roll, leaving his legs exposed for the double leg. And from there, it's more rinse and repeat. By the time round three starts, the old brawler BJJ pre-American top team Poirier is back. The one who gets desperate when losing. The one who gets tired and loses composure. So then it's no surprise Poirier, instead of doing what Mike Brown said, exploding, leading, scrambling, and switching, he backed up and went for the guillotine again. In sports, a championship-caliber team should not look for Hail Marys with so much time left on the clock. A guillotine means I don't want to wrestle anymore. I don't want to keep scrambling anymore. I want to end it here and now. So what happened? It put Poirier in a very bad position, just like it did throughout his career, just like it did in the previous round with Nurmagomedov. Mike Brown did not scream for his fighter to go for a guillotine choke. No one in that corner told him to do that. The BJJ coach in that corner did not tell him to do that. It's an old habit that came out because he was tired, because he was desperate. And after the guillotine. Poirier's arms were completely dead. And on the ground, no more switches or wrestling or posting out with his arms. He couldn't. All he could do was just rest and get beat up. And Nurmagomedov kept cranking on his neck and hitting him. And Poirier's neck is already sore and tired. And he needs to catch his breath to explode up. We're now at that moment that Poirier foreshadowed at the end of round one. He said, every time I'm looking to explode, he goes for my neck. And he never got an answer to what he should do when that happens. And having toughed through all the neck cranks, when there was a lull in action, Poirier prepared himself. One of the reasons why he's gotten to this fight and improved wasn't because his conditioning got better. His conditioning has always been good. But the reason why he doesn't get tired like he used to is because he's learned to recover in between rounds and also find moments in the fight to catch his breath and that's a new habit that served him well and that's what he was doing here he was catching his breath while preparing himself to explode up lifting his head to go and that's when Nurmagomedov put the choke on him in between the heartbeats of a grappling exchange and then it was clean and deep and sunk and the BJJ black belt couldn't use his arms to defend the choke couldn't turn his neck away from the choke all defenses were gone, and he was also caught while thinking about getting up. He was exposed and defenseless, and forced to tap out to the rear naked choke in round three of a five-round title fight. So did this fight live up to the predictions? No. With MMA analysis, it's still this weird throwback idea that if you're really good in one area, you must be equally bad in another area, and that might explain Ronda Rousey or Royce Gracie. But this logic doesn't work for Habib Nurmagomedov. Now, if you're a fighter who doesn't back up, can strike accurately, and can pressure Nurmagomedov consistently, does this mean you'll beat him? I have no idea. We have yet to see it. And this not knowing is why we fill in the blank. That this unknown is how you beat him. And the thing about unknowns is it's unknown. And this is not the same as analyzing fighters we have seen lose or get badly beaten in around and see enough footage of a weakness, then there's actually something to analyze. Whereas here, there's just a void. We're speculating the outcome of something we've yet to see much of. It's the difference between seeing what's behind door number two and not seeing what's behind door number two. And I think people who talk about MMA often forget that.
0: So next we have the co-main event, Paul Felder versus Edson Barboza in a lightweight matchup where Paul Felder defeated Barboza by split decision. This is actually a rematch from 2015 where Barboza beat Felder by unanimous decision. It snapped Paul Felder's 10-0 win streak, but proved to him that he could hang with the division's best. A lot has happened since that time frame. Felder went 6-3 with one fight up at welterweight, and Barboza split his win-loss record by going 4-4 four four since his first win against Felder. To be fair to Barboza, he's gone against a stronger competition during that stretch. Both fighters have their shiny moments in the striking phases, but because they've had such long UFC careers, there are game plans built to nullify their strengths. Barboza has been in the UFC for almost 10 years, with 21 fights in the octagon. Felder has a little over half those fights, but he's no rookie. The story going into this matchup is whether Felder has learned enough from his dozen fights in the UFC to avenge his first UFC loss or if the veteran savvy and speed of Barboza would be too much. The split decision itself is pretty controversial with many MMA fans and pundits having scored the fight for Barboza. It really comes down to that second round. How did you score it and did Felder do enough to win it? The split decision itself isn't too bad, but the 30-27 score for Felder is inexcusable. Felder himself acknowledged that the fight could have gone either way, so what fight was that judge watching when he gave all three rounds for Felder? Personally, I thought Barbosa had done enough to win two rounds, but it wasn't a robbery by any means. Heading into this fight, Felder was 4-1, with his sole loss coming at the hands of Mike Perry in a lone fight at welterweight. He had some solid performances during that time period, stopping Charles Oliveira with elbows and beating a then-still-dangerous James Vick. Felder was compared early in his career to a former teammate of his, Donald Cerrone. Their striking was similar enough to warrant a comparison, although a lazy one. Felder has always been a bit more active with his hands and his feet, and Cerrone has been the opposite. Felder is good everywhere, but there isn't one area specifically where he can call his own. In other words, he lacks the signature face that sets him apart from the crowd. Habib is king when it comes to pressuring you towards the fence and mauling you. Tony can hit crazy submissions from anywhere. And if Gaethje is close enough to hit you with lay kicks, you best believe they're coming. Outside of spinning back fists, there isn't one thing that Felder does that he's the best at. To contrast that, Barboza is known among fans as one of the most exciting fighters in the division, And if you give him even a moment at range, he will throw kicks to your head, body, and legs before you can react properly. Much like Anthony Pettis, the key to beating Barboza has always been to pressure him back and take him down whenever possible. Even if Barboza is able to defend the takedowns and wall walk himself back up, he is no longer dictating the pace and has to fight off the back foot. Barboza is less dangerous when he's throwing kicks and hooks while backing up, and enough fighters have picked up on this habit. This kind of predictability has meant that the upper echelon of the lightweight division have all picked up wins against Barboza, but he can still compete against the best and put up a solid performance. In this rematch against Felder, we saw the strengths and weaknesses of Barboza on full display. Let's break down how the fight went. The knock on Felder has always been that although he's a solid striker, he can tend to be too textbook and predictable in his movement. We saw that in this fight against Barboza, although he made up the difference by punching harder and more frequently this time around. Early on in the fight, Felder was still trying to figure out how he was going to approach the striking, and he ate a steady stream of kicks and hooks while doing so. Barboza doesn't need a lot of room to be effective, and pressure alone isn't enough to stop him. Just simply walking forwards towards Barboza won't get him to panic. It just lets Barboza set up traps that he can use on a moment's notice. Dan Hooker pressed forward and was eating kicks and hooks to the body. And Benil Dariush shot it on a takedown he attempted before one too many times and ate a perfectly timed knee. To really make sure you fluster Barboza, you have to give him different looks and constant feints. Felder's always been a slow starter, and it takes him a little bit to figure out how he's going to beat you. Against Alessandro Ricci, Felder had trouble in the first round adjusting to Ricci's southpaw stance and got hit every time he closed the distance with his step in jab Ricci would pivot out and hammer Felder with hooks to the head, but Felder did a great job using his one-twos to the body and head to keep Ricci guessing. An overall issue with Felder's game plan are always that he's in the mindset of traditional martial arts, where he will wait for his opponents to finish their attacks before starting his own. Not everyone plays this game and if you stay still just absorbing strikes, they will figure out that they can continue their attack. This was also a pattern in Felder's fight against Darren Krushenk. He would set up some great punching and kicking combinations only to admire his own handiwork and get clipped with an additional strike that he walks into. This old-school Muay Thai karate mentality of you hit me, now I'll hit you can only go so far, but Felder has had a decent amount of success with it. In this fight, Barboza took full advantage of these lulls in action by waiting on Felder to come in closer before hitting him with hooks to the body and spinning kicks. Felder was also eating a ton of leg kicks early on before he realized that he has to add in jabs along with pressure if he wants Barboza to stop attacking. The middle range is where barboza does his best work and it belongs to barboza in this fight he didn't fall for a lot of felder's feints since it came fairly slow and when felder was simply plotting forward barboza had no problem moving laterally and pivoting off to attack much like ricci barboza actually executed a well-timed takedown by timing felder's forward movements perfectly i spoke about how predictable felder can get But his ability to adjust mid-fight is how he's able to win so many fights. After listening to his corner, Felder started to throw in jabs while stepping in forward instead of merely flicking them in the hopes of getting Barboza to stay still. When Barboza moved laterally, Felder would mix in the hooks to hurt Barboza. When Felder was on his back against Barboza, one of his best offensive moves made an appearance, his elbows. This cut Barboza and gave Felder some revenge, since an accidental headbutt also cut Felder early on. Felder also drove Barboza to the fence, and even though he wasn't able to score any takedowns, it gave Barboza something to worry about and kept him from freely unloading his kicks. When it came to the hooks, it was clear that although Barboza had the quicker ones, Felder's was more powerful. This might have played into how the judges scored the second round, and it was close enough that no one fighter can claim an absolute stake that they won that time frame. By the time the third round rolled around, Felder was able to pressure Barbosa effectively and held his own during exchanges. Although Barbosa would eat clean hooks and straights to the head, he was also landing some great uppercuts to Felder's body. A late takedown seemed to seal the deal for the fight in Barbosa's mind, but the judges didn't see it that way. Barboza has now lost four out of his last five fights, and his style has gotten predictable. As stated before, he's become like Anthony Pettis, an IQ test that you have to pass in order to face the top five of the division. Although Felder is older than Barboza, the miles on Barboza may be taking its toll. A move to American Top Team hasn't really fixed his deficiencies in the stand-up, and his aversion to smart pressure fighters remain a glaring weakness. Don't get me wrong, Barboza has the physical tools to avoid these kind of issues, but he uses up a ton of energy sprinting out of bad positions to get back in the center of the octagon, and he refuses to make these in-fight adjustments that someone like Paul Felder does. Simply pivoting out and adding in a strong counter-wrestling game can do wonders for him. A great example of someone that has managed to pull off a similar feat is Marlon Moraes, his former teammate. Morais blends in an effective kicking game moving forwards and backwards, and his understanding of where his back is in relation to the cage is something that Barbosa can learn from. The gold standard of constantly pivoting and keeping your opponents at range are Max Holloway and Robert Whittaker. Without having wrestling backgrounds, both fighters are able to use a smart and effective jabbing game to complement their kicks and constantly keep their opponents guessing. Whittaker's style in particular should be studied extensively by Barbosa since he relies on kicks heavily. Holloway's ability to keep his opponents from clasping their hands from completing a takedown is now being utilized more frequently by strikers, and it's more effective than simply digging for underhooks and spreading your base. There are still some treads left in Barbosa's tires, but I don't know for how much longer. The UFC should definitely give Barboza some easier matchups to rebuild his record and momentum, especially if they want to keep his fan-friendly style from taking on too much damage. Felder has now earned himself an opportunity to prove that he belongs against the top 5 guys in the division, and it'll be interesting to see how he handles the unique styles that each of them presents. He might be a few more wins away from a title shot, but this might be a good time to rebook a fight against Ally Iaquinta. They were supposed to fight in 2017 and 2018, but injuries and last-minute changes nix those fights altogether, hopefully third time's a charm. If Aikinta is too busy, maybe Felder can fight against Justin Gaethje if he emerges victorious in his own fight against Cowboy Cerrone. Either way, we have a few more fun matchups at 155, and the division is better for having someone like Felder in it.